WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're listening to Radio Lab, Radio Lab from New York Public Radio. Public Radio WNYC and NPR. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. Today we're in a Dr. Frankenstein sort of mood, so we figure where better to start than at the museum, American Museum of Natural History, where they have on a kind of Frankenstein-y exhibit. Okay, I'm Laurel Kendall. I curate the American Museum of Natural History's exhibit, Mythic Creatures. We're standing in front of a dragon. Now, why would there be a dragon at the Museum of Natural History? Well, according to the curator Laurel Kendall, yeah, why not? The human mind loves to wonder, well, what would happen if we put wings on a horse or put a tail on a beautiful woman? That is human. Justify it however you want. That belongs in the museum. What you see before you we begin the is a hall of strange, twisting creatures dimly lit. And when you look more closely, you realize that they're all mashups. From the natural world, for example. She takes us over to one corner, points at a glass case where inside what you're seeing is, is this creepy little hybrid skeleton thing. Look at this beast and see how it really is a composite. Half of it is a monkey, the upper half. A monkey's skull. And the lower half? Is a fishtail. Like some kind of trout. With some scales. The place is full of stuff like this. Uh, a lion with an eagle head, humans with snake tails. Just about anything you can imagine. It's very operatic. Oh, and I forgot to mention the most important part. Kids. <laughs> tons and tons of kids completely in awe. Oh my gosh, a unicorn. Oh. Look at his claws, boys and girls. Look at his tails. What are we standing under here? The Pegasus. Can you describe what we're seeing here? It's a horse. The body's like a horse. It has these really big wings. Wings like birds. Like an eagle. Maybe somehow its parents were a horse and a bird and their their genes um, formed together to nice. make a pegasus. It's just what I see, like what I see, it just looks so exciting. I think that it just looks really cool. And when you ask these kids, as our producer Lulu Miller did. Why is it cool? Like why is it fun to see two animals mashed together? Um Well they just look at you like you're dumb. It's a horse. Rings. Yes, birds have wings. Yes, um, birds, they're not mythical. They're like yeah. regular. Yeah, Every regular. day you see them. Every time you just see a pigeon, you're like, oh, whatever. Maybe it's that simple. Yeah. In any case, the kids, sick of us and our dumb questions, ran off <laughs> to this kiosk right. that the museum had set up around the corner. Where they could actually build their own creatures. Okay, now can you describe your guy here? Well, he has um, seven heads. And he, he has, has a tail with fire on it. Four legs. And he has a long body. And the thing is, what kind of legs are those? You can't help but wonder if these same kids in about 30 or 40 years might actually be able to do this for real. When they're grown up, those kids will be at home in the new world of biotechnology. They will be ready to put their skills to use. There will be do-it-yourself kits to breed new varieties of pigeons and parrots and lizards and snakes. A body like a snake rather than like a bird. Oh, can I do it? Because I never got to do that. Genetic engineering, once it gets into the hands of housewives and children, will give us an explosion of diversity of new living creatures. That is physicist Freeman Dyson. We'll hear more from him later. Now, whether it's true or not what he's saying... It does seem to be the case that we are at this pivotal point now where the stuff that we used to only imagine might actually turn into reality. Which is why maybe you get an exhibit of fantasy creatures at the Museum of Natural History. This is a celebration of the human imagination, human ingenuity, human art. It's alive! In the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God!
That's our show today, life, but not as we know it. Life as we might invent it, tweak it, augment it. Yes, but if you augment, tweak, and remake, people will quickly come to you and say, hey, don't fuss with this. It's not natural. It's not right. Speaking of right, natural, and fussing, who are you? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm Robert Krulwich, who is always right, always natural. And and always fussing. (laughs) In any case, that word you you mentioned. um, Natural. Yeah, that one, natural. What does it mean exactly? Let's just... Think it usually means it means what's familiar, what we know, what we know. Let's yeah. uh, let's just muck that up a bit because mm. it turns out when you look in nature, you will find things that are frankly very strange and not familiar. Like, well, let me tell you a story. It's an amazing story about a woman. Heard about it from a reporter, Soren Wheeler. Hi, Soren. Right. Hey. All right. So, Soren, tell me about Karen. Well, Karen is a mother of three, a middle-aged woman living outside of Boston in the suburbs of Boston. And uh, she lives there with her husband, Pete. The kids are out of the house now. Tell me what you were thinking when you walked up to her door. Well, I, I was nervous. I was kind of strangely nervous about meeting her. Hi, Karen. Hi. But I got there, and she was as friendly as can be. Well, come on in. Right. Bring in a couple cups of tea. She made me tea. We sat in the living room and talked. And uh, she was just normal, which is kind of weird, given the story that she was about to tell me. So, let's start at the very beginning. Yeah. Well, in 1995, I was told that I needed a kidney transplant immediately. What's that like? Like, what are you going through? It was frightening. The doctors told Karen they needed to act fast. They asked me who in my family might be willing to donate a kidney. So the two older boys, that's Matt and Jess, and Karen's husband, Pete, they all went in to get what should have been a pretty routine DNA test. Yep, they had the blood work done. And they waited. A couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from the hospital, and they said, Mrs. Keegan, uh, this is a very unusual situation that we're uh, going to explain to you. Uh, It's something that we've never seen before. But uh, when the DNA testing was done on your sons, we found that they didn't match your DNA. Is that how they said it? Mm -hmm. They said they match the father, but they're not a match for you. What does that mean? They didn't match her DNA. She's not their mother. Oh. Pretty much. Karen, this was crazy. Yeah. I mean, she told them, well, I was there. This could not possibly be. I gave birth to these kids. I felt the pain. You know, you better do the test again because you're obviously wrong. And so they did do the test again. Same result. The read was correct. There was not a laboratory error. This is one of her doctors, Lynn Yule. We, we felt, particularly after the second time, that it was real. And then they said... Now, we have had situations where the husband's DNA didn't match, but we've never had a mother whose DNA didn't match their children. So wait, if the DNA is saying she's not the mom, then what would explain that? Well, the first thought was that there was some kind of mix-up. Some switch of babies or something. Oh, like a baby switch right after birth kind of a thing. Yeah, but the problem with that is that the dad is the dad. The father's right. Uh, yeah. So you have to figure, like, how could they have gotten the wrong kid but the right dad? So then what? If, if that's the case... Here's the thing. At this, at this point... As we got further involved with this... People are thinking, maybe Karen's done something kind of fishy. Yeah, there must be something that you're not being told. Like maybe she implanted her womb with another woman's baby. And then she just kind of lied about it? Yeah, that she lied about it. They said, well, could you tell us what hospital you had these children in? Would, well, how, exactly how? What, what would... I'm still confused. She's being accused of being some kind of monster. Somebody who maybe wished they had children or stolen a child or something had to be because obviously DNA is never wrong. It's never wrong. Whoa. So how does she talk to her family about this? What are those conversations like? I do remember some very sort of sad moments with my sons. You know, I told them I don't think they maybe even completely realized what I was saying. Lynn, Karen's doctor, 
couldn't get this out of her head. Something wasn't adding up. Didn't make sense. And so she thought about the fact that they'd done all of the tests on Karen's blood. Only in her blood cells. So Lynn started thinking maybe the next step they ought to look at some other parts. And to do that, we would need to, to test other tissues. Scrape the inside of your mouth and get a little saliva and maybe a hair or two. Thyroid. Bladder. And a skin biopsy. <laughs> They're getting all sorts of parts They're getting all parts, all kinds of parts from me. And, and that's when things started to get strange. When we got the results of the tissue studies, we identified two, 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 two. two sets of DNA. Two people. Two to what? Uh, another person in Karen. She had another person inside her? Well, sort of. She did have a separate set of DNA, so it was like she had another person with its own genetic identity in her body. Whoa. And, and the thing is, Judd, that other person, that was the mother of the boys. Well, so how did it get there? I mean, that's what the doctors were wondering. So they all sit down, put their heads together, try to figure it out. And then it hit him. You, you were a twin. You are a twin. She, you mean she had a twin? No, she's both twins. Here's what happened. In Karen's mother's womb, originally there were two eggs. Two fertilized eggs. Twin girls, side by side. Developing in their own separate sacs. Then, after a couple days, something strange happens. Somehow, the two embryos bump into each other. And they fuse. Into one unit. And that one became Karen. Like a mixture of the two of them? Well, no. They, they didn't blend. According to Lynn, what happened is they kind of claimed different parts of her. They still had their own, what do I want to say, boundaries. One twin claimed her blood, and the other twin claimed her thyroid and her bladder. And So Karen is a plural. Okay. Is this... Has this, has this happened before? Well, supposedly it's pretty rare, but it does happen. In fact, there's, there's a scientific word for this condition. Karen first heard that word from her doctor, Margot Kreskal. Margot came to my bedside, explained that I was a chimera, a term which I had never heard of did before. She, did she come and say, you're a chimera? Did yes. She? Now, that was interesting because I called my son the English major, and said, Matt, I found out I was a chimera. And he said, oh, you know what a chimera is, don't you? And I said, no. And he said, well, in the ancient Greek myths, a chimera is an animal that has like a lion head and a donkey's hoof and a goat tail. You know, it's a mixture. In Greek myths, the chimera was a monster. Get that the hero's supposed to slay. That didn't make me feel very good. <laughs> then Karen learned more about what Chimera meant medically and what could have happened to her. If the eggs hadn't fused within four days, I would have become a Siamese twin. When you hear that, you immediately have a more concrete vision of two selves. It brought home the reality that I really was a twin. She is a twin. One doctor said, do you think you have two souls? I think of myself as the union, but there is almost a sort of subtle sadness to think that I would have had a sister. Yeah. And so there is sort of a shadow feeling of loss. There could have been more. Thanks to reporter Soren Wheeler for that. Let's make things a little more disturbing now. Yeah. Because Human beings, scientists, are now capable of creating chimeras purposefully. 
and we talked to Lee Silver, who's a scientist at Princeton. Oh, Lee. Okay, Lee, you have to say something. Okay. You know, my left ear is receiving more than my right. Is there a way? And he told us about an intentional chimera, a creature created by a Danish embryologist named Steen Willitson. He took a goat embryo and a sheep embryo, and he pushed them together in his Petri dish, put that mixture of embryo back into a female, I don't remember which species, and then what was born was an animal that was part goat, part sheep, and he called that a geep. Was it visibly kind of goaty and kind of sheepy? Well, it was actually, yes, it was very visible, and what happened because of the way development occurs, parts of its body look sheep-like and parts of its body look goat-like. Which okay. parts? Yeah. Well, and he did this multiple times, and so he actually got multiple geeps, and sometimes the animal would have a goat head, but then parts of its body would be sheep-like with wool. Other times it would have a sheep head. How confusing oh, it would be at the wow. geep dance. You wouldn't know, like, who was supposed to dance with whom? <laughs> could could geeps relate with one another in that way? <laughs> I don't remember. He's not a geep. <laughs> Odd as he may look, <laughs> with that little beard and everything and the hooves. Right, just to give you a visual, we've got a picture here of three geeps hanging out near a tree. It's, uh, do you want to describe it? Well, the geep, one of them looks like a naked animal wearing a coat of shaggy hair. It's got this streak of sheep wool running down its back, but the rest of it looks kind of goaty. Which, do you, do you find it cute? I kind of do find it cute. Well, but now let's uncute it a bit. Suppose instead of talking about mixing sheep with goats, okay. since you're not a sheep or a goat, <laughs> let's make it more personal. Um, people are most worried about combining human embryonic cells and monkey or chimp embryonic cells. And so the idea is if you took a chimp embryo and a human embryo and you push them together, Based on the GEEP results, based on lots of other data that scientists have accumulated, it's very likely that you'd have an organism born that was part chimp, part human. Well, there once was a creature like that because if you believe in evolution, you believe that chimps eventually became humans. So somewhere in history, there is someone who is 10% chimp and 90% human. And that common ancestor evolved continuously and slowly from a chimp-like um, individual to a human. And at every point along the 100,000 generations, the children didn't look very different from their parents. But here's, the, here's the, the very sad Hollywood movie. I go and I go and I create a creature, a geep-like, you know, amalgamation, which is 50% chimpanzee ape and 50% human homo sapiens. And he's the only one. That's like creating a tragedy, it seems like, because you'd be creating someone who is isolated in his physiology. Yes. I mean, this is. No one could breed with him, or maybe they could, but who yeah. would like Well, I'm going to. This Because you're taping this. Yeah. Um, you're opening something. I'm opening something for you. This is actually a, a play. Here, you can uh, look at this. It's going to be performed next week. Sweet, Sweet Motherhood, is yes, that it? Yes, that's it. So this is a play at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Shelley McCann wants a baby, a human chimpanzee baby. Oh. oh. Shelley's been spending too much time partying to build up a respectable grade point average, so she proposes the following senior thesis. Fertilize one of her eggs with a sperm from a chimpanzee in her womb. Interesting term paper. So Professor Harry Stein must do everything he can to stop her. The play is inspired by a true event. Really? This is your play? Yes. Uh -huh. Jeremy Carrigan is the uh -huh. main playwright, and I've collaborated with him. What is the true event on which this is based? The, the true event is that uh, about 10, 12 years ago now, I was talking in my usual flippant way to a bunch of students and uh, a sequence information had just come out showing that chimps and humans were almost 90% the same at the DNA level. And so I just threw out the idea, well, based on what we know about goats and sheep and everything else, you probably could have a hybrid develop between a chimpanzee and a human being. It was a thought experiment. What would it be? How would it develop? Which of its characteristics would be human? Which would be chimpanzee? 
The next day, a student, a junior, came to my office and said she wanted to do the experiment inside her own womb. Ah. And uh, so then, yes. Uh, <laughs> In real life, what did you do? Hit her on the head with a baseball bat or what? No, I had a long, I, I was flabbergasted. She was absolutely serious because she, it, it is actually true. She, she was this student who partied a lot and she needed, and the senior thesis at Princeton counts an enormous amount towards your final GPA. So uh, she wanted to do this unique experiment, hoping she'd get an A-plus in her senior thesis. She was very naive, obviously. Wow. That was the she last time I saw her. She was going to put up this little chimpanzee for adoption as soon as it was born? Well, no, no, worse, she worse than that. To school she, with her. She, I asked her, what would you do with this individual? I said, well, if it's a human being, you have to raise it like a human being. It has rights like a human being. If it's a chimpanzee, you put her in a zoo or you use it, use it for experiments. And what's it going to be? And her answer to that question was she would abort right before um, wow. it came time to go into labor. She'd abort. And so the whole idea of the senior thesis was to study the development of this hybrid inside of her womb. She really wanted to do this for real, not just on paper for a project, but actually she to wanted, herself. Yes. Now, there are many, 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 many problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This gives new meaning to the liberal arts education. It's got to right. be really liberal here. And we, we talked for about an hour. Um, I dissuaded her. I never saw her again. Except in a way, in his play, the one he co-wrote, this is the play about the teacher at the fancy university who happens just to be teaching a biology class. The human ovary within the mouse's body happens to have this notion about what would it be like if chimps and humans had babies together. Actually, in a number of ways, I am more similar to a male chimp than I am to my sister. Happens to have, in the play, a student who comes up after class and says, I want to combine one of my eggs with chimpanzee sperm. I don't want you to do this. Why not? Except, by the way, in the play, she actually goes through with it. I'm pregnant. But, you know, he, he wrote the play to keep a conversation going that wouldn't get out of his head. And the question is, what is a human being? Um, if you look at it developmentally, evolutionarily, through these hybrids and chimeras, where's the boundary between human being and non-human being? And at the end of my uh, quest, I personally concluded that there is no boundary. No, no, no? No. It's fuzzy. So, in other words, if you look at uh, the analogy I like to give is look at the color spectrum between green and blue. When you go from green to blue along the color spectrum, it's a continuous, gradual change from one to the other. There's no point at which you say, here's the boundary between green and blue. And if you take that analogy, which I did to human beings, you say during development, during evolution, in, the, in terms of a chimera, there's no boundary. But the social effect of having staked out that position is that you aren't going to defend our species against all kinds of amendments. There is a consequence to this kind of thinking, right? I mean, you can't do a cold porter anything goes, can you? No, no, I don't believe you can do anything goes. My purpose is to say not that anything goes, but that in theory, all these outrageous things could happen. And actually are happening. Here's an example. Since 1980, scientists have been taking human genes, genetic information, putting it into mice. I mean, this is sort of a routine procedure and uh, for people who do mouse molecular genetics. And in fact, the really exciting thing that people are doing now is they're making cows that are engineered to produce human blood. And the oh. idea is, is that you want to change all the genes in the cow that normally produce the proteins in cow blood. You want to make them all human. Mm. So you'd have a cow making human blood. I don't think most people would mind that. And then you could use it for blood transfusions. Wow. Could you make a cow with human blood and a human kidney so that you could use that too? Well, actually, a ma they, uh, Israeli scientists have already created a mouse that has a tiny little functioning human kidney. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could show you the picture. Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, and there are other people who are working with sheep and trying to make human livers inside sheep. And, and the whole idea is, is regenerative medicine. Sacrifice the animals to get a new kidney for you. Now, mm -hmm. I actually think that as long as you don't play with the external features, I think society will accept it. I mean, you know, people eat pigs. 
And if you can eat a pig, why not grow a pig to have a human liver, kidney, or heart? As long as it still looks like a pig, you're saying. That's right. As long as it still looks like a pig and it still behaves like a pig. You know, if you put a human arm onto a pig, I don't think people would like that. But you acknowledge that the distinctions you're drawing are emotional distinctions and not rational. Absolutely, they're emotional. And I'm saying that sometimes emotional distinctions matter. I mean, I have no solutions. I mean, I don't know where to draw lines. Society has to draw lines. Radiolab will continue in a moment. Message one. Hi, this is Lee Silver. Radiolab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Science Foundation. Radiolab is produced by WNYC, New York Public Radio, and distributed by NPR, National Public Radio. End of message. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more— People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krillwitz. And this is Radio Lab. Our topic today is, um, what is our topic today, well, Robert? our topic today is making life that isn't there before you arrived in the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, life, not as we know it, yes. but as we might invent it or make it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about life, you and I. Okay, mm-hmm. so when you look around in the world at living things, and I say, look, Jad, there's a cat, and next to that is a dog, mm-hmm. and that's a tree. And you notice that those things, of course, are different. Yes. And later when we go to school, we learn about phylums and categories like kingdoms and stuff. So we mm-hmm. learn about the nature of those differences. And then you're taught about struggle and competition, Darwin, Darwin and species and all that. And yeah. There is a new theory that's being talked about that turns all of that on its head. I heard it first from this guy. Um, I'm Steve Strogatz. I'm an applied mathematician at Cornell. And the story he uh, told me, which is based on analysis of DNA in very tiny organisms, microbes, is that once upon a time, uh, he says, life began with a very primitive, very simple collection of cells. And these cells, said Steve, (laughs) these cells, like... To shape. It appears that as you, when you go back far enough, there's a kind of rampant sharing of molecules. It's a kind of orgy in which there are no well-defined species or organisms, and I can give you my genes and you can pass. We're, we're a commune. It was a commune. What, what does that mean? He's a, it was a commune. What do you mean? What does it Why? mean? I, mean it I know what it means in the 60s, three in love sense, but what does it really mean? What, uh, what cells are exchanging is chemicals. Chemicals that give them talents and traits. Genes. Here's what happens. I did this with Steve. In our, in our ancient puddle, I mean, Darwin thought that life might have begun in a warm puddle. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you and I are both cells. Okay. So once upon a time, there was you in a puddle, and I'm in the same puddle as you. Mm-hmm. And it, it gets a little colder in the puddle, so we should all get sick. But you don't get sick. You have some kind of accidental talent. You can handle cold water. I'm shivering. Describe again what happens in, at this point <laughs> in the glorious old days. Well, my membrane, that is, I, I'm a cell. I've got a membrane. I've got my outer layer. Maybe a little bit porous and maybe... Whoops, some of my genes just leaked out. (laughs) Okay, we're not talking sophisticated organisms. And maybe you're porous too, and oh, whoa, you just absorbed some of those genes. So now we both have this. We both got it. We both got it. And if I've got this gene now, I can survive cold water because it's part of me. And if I bump into you, now it's part of you. So now this Steve gene has become a Robert gene, which has then become a Jad gene, and we're doing this over and over and over. And we're getting really um, 
Camilo Matos. It sounds so friendly. No, no, no actually, it, it, don't think of cells like people. Shut up! All these exchanges, this gene swapping, was not intentional. It's not purposeful sharing. That's Nigel Goldenfeld. I'm a theoretical physicist at the University of Illinois. And he and his colleague Carl Woese did the science that led to some of these kind of groovy ideas. It's not me sort of saying, hey, I'm going to just help out my buddy over there. Here's a couple of genes that I think you'll find handy. It's not something like that. Even still, if we're swapping genes so much and, you know, you're giving me yours and I'm giving me mine, yeah. what does it actually mean to be me? Yeah. If so much of me is spread around. Well, it would be very weird. Imagine a world in which for a while I have your nose. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get my nose back. You'd have Steve's hair. Then Steve would get my ear. Then he would get your nose. Once you start having a lot of uh, exchange. I'll take your chin. Okay. You can have my um, allergies. And then you start even asking, what does it mean um, to be a species? You can have my um, love affair with doubt. <laughs> uh, you may not even be able to talk about individuals. Yeah, if the mixing is good enough, we're all kind of indistinguishable. So identity would be very strange in this ancient world. A lot of the concepts that we take for granted in, in biology become more and more nebulous as you get further and further back to the root of the origin of life. Take, for instance, Charles Darwin. What Nigel's really saying is that for the first billion years of life, with a B, with a B, everything that Darwin teaches, all that stuff hasn't happened. There are no borders, no individuals, there's no species. That is Darwinism, evolution as we now understand it. That's an interlude in the real story of life. It's only what's happening now. What you got back at the very beginning was a whole bunch of cells swapping genes, swapping advantages, swapping disadvantages, and it's kind of a wild time. A tremendous explosion of diversity in a way that life has not seen since then. Until... One dark and terrible day, <laughs> three billion years ago. As interpreted by Freeman Dyson, Freeman Dyson, the famous physicist and delivered here now by our friend the mathematician Steve Strogatz. Here's Steve. One evil day, a bacterium anticipating Bill Gates by three billion years refused to share. Refuse to share. Ooh. The first bad guy is this cellular Bill Gates who, who decides that I've, I've got an innovation that I don't feel like sharing. Or possibly I found a way to keep my membrane from leaking. That is, I'm not going to be a sharing soul anymore. And why? I mean, what made that one little cell decide to stop sharing? That's a good question. We don't really know. But what we do know. This is, was maybe the most dramatic moment in the history of life on Earth. This transition from the age of, well, if you want to call it the age of sharing, to the age of selfishness. And gradually, once one creature stopped sharing, pretty soon the others followed, and then more and more did the same thing. And now, for the first time in the history of life, finally we get Darwin. Now we get species. Now we see differences. Yes, it's the age of identity, of individualism. It's also the age of, of stasis. Things change, but they change much more slowly. And any great thing, you know, like you are a bat and you figured out sonar. I, I don't have sonar. I can't get sonar. <laughs> Be nice to have sonar. Or like you're in a little electric fish that lives in the muddy waters of the Amazon. You don't care. It's totally dark. You can see because you can see with electricity. I can't see with electricity. If I'm in the dark, I'm bumping my head. Okay, so here's where we end up. Chapter one. One. A great orgy of gene swapping. Chapter two. Two. The orgy ends. We pass genes now not to other guys, not randomly, but just to our own children. And finally, here comes... Chapter three. As proposed by Freeman Dyson, the physicist. Freeman Dyson. After three billion years of life slowly evolving through random mutations, through bumps in the night, one species, Jad, human beings, you... And me, we have become so smart, so, well, some of us, so technologically <laughs> advanced that we can swap genes. We now decide who gets what genes. And thanks to us, evolution as Darwin described it is beginning to end. And now we welcome evolution as described by Freeman Dyson to the graduating class at the University of Michigan. I see a bright future for the biotech industry. 
becoming small and domesticated rather than big and centralized. Freeman thinks that in the future everybody, and he means everybody, they will all be creating new life forms. And why? Because they can. There will be do-it-yourself kits for gardeners who will use genetic engineering to breed new varieties of roses and orchids. Kits for lovers of pigeons and parrots and lizards and snakes to breed new varieties of pets. Genetic engineering, once it gets into the hands of housewives and children, will give us an explosion of diversity of new living creatures. The final step in the domestication of biotechnology will be biotech games, designed like computer games for children down to kindergarten age, but played with real eggs and seeds rather than with images on a screen. Playing such games, kids will acquire an intimate feeling for the organisms that they're growing. The winner could be the kid whose seed grows the prickliest cactus, or the kid whose egg hatches the cutest dinosaur. So there's your future. I would like to make it your future for the moment rather than my own. But it doesn't sound that bad. I mean, maybe a little sci-fi. Well, actually, here's the interesting thing is that what he's describing has already begun. There are kids doing this right now or something very close to it. Uh, How old were you when you did this? I, I guess I was 20. I'm 21 right now. Okay, who are you? What's your name and what do you do? Uh, I'm Stephen Payne. I'm a senior in biological engineering at MIT. Now, here's the thing about Stephen. He, like most kids who are in the sciences in college, had to spend hours and hours and hours in the lab waiting for E. coli to slowly grow in a Petri dish. E. coli, like the stuff that gives you food poisoning? Well, yeah, it's it's the stuff. It's common bacteria and it lives naturally in your gut. And it's, by the way, a big laboratory favorite. And the problem is, says Reshma Sethi, who's a grad student at MIT, is E. coli in the raw? Actually smell really bad. What does it smell like? Uh, it actually kind of smells, I guess, maybe like poo. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think it smells like? Feces. But anyway, Stephen and his friends got it into their heads that they could make... Make E. coli that smell... You know, nicer. Yep, nicer smelling. Like cinnamon or cherry. Or, or like minty fresh. We ended up deciding on wintergreen. Wintergreen? Like you got something against wintergreen? I mean, no. In the real world, who has wintergreen? Uh, it's the petunia plant. Petunias have wintergreen? I have no idea. Yeah. A lot of folks study why plants make nice smells. So why do roses smell nice? Why do petunias smell nice? So what we did was we requested from one of these folks, Natalia Dudareva from Purdue University. We asked her to send us a sample of one of the genes she had studied that produces this wintergreen smell. Uh, she mailed it. Through the mail. They opened it up. We took it. Took it out. What were you taking out? A little bit of gunk? It's actually living cells, living dried cells. Yeah. We pulled out the DNA, put it into a new cell. And once the new DNA had done its thing, Stephen called everybody into the lab. And we all came over and we're like, whoa, these, you know, this E. coli culture actually does smell like mint. And we were like, Yay. <laughs> That's crazy. Yay. <laughs> so instead of smelling poo all day, they get to smell uh, wintergreen. Well, actually, there was more than that, because uh, after their wintergreen success, Stephen and Reshman decided, you know, why should we stay in the in the lab all day, even though it smells nicer now? Because we have to sit there and watch these E. coli grow and grow and grow till they're ready to be experimented on. We could be outside playing Frisbee. So they decided to put a little trigger inside the E. coli. So when it's done growing, it switches from wintergreen to... Banana. Banana? Banana. Yeah, the banana. So banana. You know, it smells like a banana milkshake. I mean, it smells more like a banana than a banana does. (laughs) So wintergreen means it's still growing, and banana means we're done. Yep. Wow, that's kind of awesome. Awesome's a word. I want to discuss the awesome question here. Okay. Were you at all intrigued by the idea that as far as I know, and maybe as far as you know, maybe as far as anybody know, in the history of the E. coli creature, there has never been an E. coli that smelled like wintergreen. You made it yourself. Well, with the help of my team members, yes. (laughs) Did you feel a little spooked by the fact that you just created a life form new new to creation? Um... I mean, at least we're doing something that's, you know, smells pleasant. (laughs) 
But you didn't feel like uh, Dr. Frankenstein or God or... Uh, not at all. So what, what does it feel like to make something that's never existed before? Just feels like basic engineering. Yeah, we're engineers. I would say we're engineers. We're building stuff. Building stuff. stuff. Building stuff. Building stuff. Building stuff. 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 And not just stuff. 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 But living stuff. The road ahead is bright and clear Because we're bioengineers We'll fix the problems of today By building stuff with DNA We're splicing genes, we're building creatures Adding extra useful features No more waiting, Darwin's done Swapping genes is much more fun Building stuff Building stuff Building stuff The road ahead is bright and clear Because we're bioengineers I'd rather be swapping genes It's mankind's only fighting chance Designer genes, not denim pants We'll stop disease and greenhouse gases Sequencing nucleic acids Crack the code, we've seen the light We're building stuff, we're building life We're building life The road ahead is bright and clear Thanks to Josh Kurz and Shane Winter for that music. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. My name is Alyssa Hargrave, and I'm calling from Shakopee, Minnesota, where it is currently negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hello, I'm Jad. And I am Robert. And this is Radio Lab, and today our topic is... Tinkering, I guess. Tinkering... With nature. Yeah. Or life. Yes, but not as we know it. Because before the break, we heard about some kids doing something that they call... Yes, directed evolution. ...by sticking wintergreen into a place where wintergreen has never been before. Yeah. Which definitely qualifies as life, not as we know. But now let's get into the true grid of this. Because those kids are looking at life in a, in a fairly different way than most of us do. Yes, it's very interesting that the people who are creating these living systems are engineers. This is Lee Silver from Princeton University. I mean, they, they really look at a living system as no different than a computational uh, electronic device. And you, your hunch is they're right. My hunch is they're wrong. I don't know quite why. My hunch is they're right, but um, most of the world <laughs> doesn't believe that. <laughs> Which would include me, because I find it very hard to imagine that a, a, that a life form, something that's animate and lives a, for a span of years and then dies, you know, it's like when they die and the spirit kind of goes off. It's hard for me to believe that that is just a chemical machine assembled from parts. Really? Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I guess I can understand that. But let me introduce you to a guy now whose whole... Uh, admittedly young career is based on the idea that life is a machine, that it's made of parts, parts that he can build and sell. Okay. So I'm I'm Brian Baines. Brian, we met actually just down the street from those MIT kids. He is 31. That's right. Just 31. And he runs his own biotech company. I'm one of the founders of Codon Devices here. 
We make custom synthetic genes from scratch. And he's doing pretty well. The industry is basically doubling every two years at this point. And just to give you a sense of what Brian does, you with me? Yep. Just take your example, those MIT kids. Let's say I'm one of those kids or someone else who's heard about them and I want to take my stinky bacteria and make it smell better. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I want to make it glow. All I have to do is call Brian. Sure. Because he'll sell me a simple gene like that for about 1500 bucks. I just have to go online, look up the chemical recipe for how to glow in the dark. Uh, yes, here it is. 1,200 letters. A, T, G, C, A, C. These are letters of DNA. A, G, a T, and a C of four fundamental building blocks of DNA. The next step? Just list out those A's, G's, and T's, and C's. Yeah, just type them into an email. Generally, they're not typing it themselves. Imagine trying to type in 2,000 letters by hand without making a mistake. Yeah, that would take too long. All right, just copy and paste them into an email. Send them to Brian. When we get that in-house, we're going to take that into our factory. Brian then plugs the string of letters into this machine, which is about the size of a desktop computer. We have a synthesis system where it literally has a bunch of little A's in a jar and a bunch of G's in a jar and and T's and C's. Now, mind you, these chemicals are inert. They are store-bought, $100 a bottle. The machine they're all connected to reads all the letters that Brian plugs in. And when it sees an A, the machine squirts out some A dust. And when it sees a T, squirts out some tea dust. We can add an A or a G or a T or a C to a growing strand of DNA. And so we're literally adding one base at a time. So what starts as one letter pieces, then grows to 50, then grows to maybe 500, then grows to maybe 5,000. And at a certain point, all of these inert chemicals hold hands. And that's literally how you make DNA chemically. That is how you go from dust to something that is not exactly alive. But if I take this little speck of DNA and stick it into my cell, amazingly, it will start to glow or smell better or whatever it is that I want it to do. It will do it. It's almost as if the cell is a computer. And this little bit of DNA is a software program. I mean, that's the way synthetic biologists think about it. Hmm. And what synthetic biologists are hoping for, says Lee, is that the the software, quote unquote, will get standardized. It will come down in price so that one day installing new features into organisms will be just as easy as when you install new software on your home PC. You put a word processor, you put a spreadsheet program. User-friendly. That's kind of the logic. Yeah, but that's not the, that's, that, we're talking about life here. Life isn't yeah. like, you know, a game of Legos. Well, what just... if it is? I mean, I know it's weird to think. It's wrong, another way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> but what if it's not wrong? Just imagine, you can start to look at things in a completely new way. You can look at that creature over there and say, that creature right there has a talent that I really like. And that one over there, the second one, it also does something cool. Maybe if I take talent one and talent two, stick them together, put them into a third creature, then I've got a little factory that can do really cool stuff. Create living things that have very important functional values. As an example, in our earlier conversation with Lee Silver, he brought up a guy named George Church. George Church is a scientist at Harvard Medical School. He's thought to be absolutely brilliant by everybody that knows him. Lee actually happened to have a picture of George on him, and he and he showed us. Oh, is that, that him? That's him. He does, he does look like a radical. Let me see. Let me see what his face looks like. Describe him. He's wearing an army shirt of some kind. He's got a nice bushy beard and a spit curl. He could be Santa Claus played by Clark Gable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had to visit him. Hi, how are you? And George is unusual as scientists go. I'm George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. For the last 20 years, he's been going further and further and further in terms of synthesizing life. Okay. I'll slide. You know what I'll do? I'll slide. he's, He's stuffing some kind of big black rod up my nose. That would be the mic. Now, the kind of creatures that George Church engineers are the same kind that those MIT kids use, E. coli. By taking these little tiny E. coli and, you know... Adding a few genes from other organisms and and tweaking the internal chemistry. He has gotten the E. coli to suck in sugar, which is what they normally like to eat, but poop out... All kinds of things. Most notably, drumroll please... Diesel! (laughs) For real? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the company I co-founded has produced hydrocarbons. That is just a fancy way of saying, among other things, diesel. Three different kinds to run in 
three types of engines, cars, trucks, and planes. I was curious to see how it all works, so he took me to a room at the back of his lab where he's perfecting the process, and he pointed to a small uh, container. So here's an example where we might grow up a large batch of, of cells in a, in a fermenter. So this big vat right here, which yeah. is, I don't know, how, what's the size of a... Uh, this is a couple of liters. Pretty small. It's about the size of a Coke bottle. And right now he can only make a few drops. So there are some scale issues to solve. But I asked him, you know, where does he imagine the stuff going? Project forward into the future. And he painted... Describe it for me. What would it look like? An amazing picture of huge bodies of water. Giant ponds or lakes. Of gas. I mean, just imagine we could take a boat, paddle around, and be beautiful birds chirping. Except under the surface, trillions of bacteria would be busily eating plant life, burping out diesel fuel. Which then float to the surface. As this kind of gassy foam. And you can skim it off. Skim it off, throw it into a pipe, and there you have it. I mean, this could be the oil refinery of the future. No more pumping it out of the ground and fighting wars. Forget that. That's old. Now we're talking microbes, man. Microbes. <laughs> and this could be just the beginning. I mean, according to Lee Silver, people are hoping that this kind of bioengineering can produce all kinds of stuff. You know, a drug that uh, cures malaria, something that makes plastic. I mean, anything. Well, I, I, they would be good. Yeah, But would. there is part of it that makes it, me a little uneasy. Why? And, 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 well... I want to introduce you to another bioengineer. He's often called the leader of the pack. Like the Rat Pack? Except <laughs> sort of like the Rat Pack. His name is Craig Venter. And like the Rat Pack folks, he's very talented, he's very ambitious, he's very driven. He's also working on a bug for fuel. He also thinks that the Earth is in trouble. We're messing our nests something terrible. And when we were at the 92nd Street Y in New York, he said to write out loud, bioengineering, creating new life, is our last hope. It's probably our one major chance of having our species survive on this planet. I mean, this is the engineering of the rest of this century. And that's a little, I mean... Stand aside, young man. I'll rescue you now with my magical scientific ability and my natural engineering skills. If he could save the world, I'd stand aside and throw him a, a parade. Well, except that you don't realize just how ambitious these, these guys are going What's wrong with the, ambition? Nothing, really, but what you don't know is just how bold this guy is. He not only wants to mix and match traits that already exist in, in, in life to make new forms of life, he wants to do original design. He wants to think of things that life has never done before, things that are in his head that are entirely new. He even dreams of life from, from scratch. From scratch, completely like 4.1 billion years ago, kind of like in Genesis. It would probably take a little longer, but uh, <laughs> I think there will be new life forms. You think it will be possible in your lifetime that someone will go into a store, buy dust, figure out what it is that they have to do with that dust so that what they make will be unmistakably alive. Not alive, then alive. Yes. Yes. But, but using the knowledge that we have from studying this four billion years of evolution. We this know is how the to thing about, uh, yeah. what, what if I told you that I thought, no. I don't know why. Just no. I think you reviewed my grant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a, there's a can-do-ness yeah. to scientists that, I, that puzzles me a little bit. Isn't there something that you think, and this would be really close to it, creating life that just might be out of our grasp. It might be forever mysterious. And, and yet you guys, like, I mean, is there anything in the way of, of engineering life? Is there anything that you think is not doable? Do you think it's never going to happen that you'll create a conscious life form from scratch? Or it will never happen that you will create a morally, you know, a sense of a creature with moral sense of right and wrong? Or I don't know. I think you think that everything is possible. Everything. I think you're right. <laughs> Okay, I get that Craig and people like him might have a little bit of a of an attitude, attitude about what they can accomplish. But is that your problem? That he that he it's his attitude. No, that's no, fine? no, no. It's it's a sense of life. I think is wrong here. 
I really appreciate, because of Darwin and Darwinian evolution, that it takes 100 million, 200 million, a billion years for creatures to figure out how to live in the neighborhood of life, how to know what to eat, what to avoid, how to fit in. How, you know, if you're going to sustain, you've got to learn how to live harmoniously with the rest of nature. It takes a while. Hmm. But... Here come these engineers over some weekend think, I have a new idea, maybe they'll eat oil or I don't know. And then you stick it into the world and you've just stuck something into a rich fabric of life and you have no idea of all the different consequences that could follow from that decision. Uh, look, look at what happens right now with antibiotics. That scientist Nigel Goldenfeld, whom we heard from you know, before. 50 years ago, we declared war on microbes. We, we fed antibiotics to cattle, to kids when they had virus infections. We poured so much antibiotics into our bodies and into our food that the bacteria we were trying to kill figured out a way to avoid our medicines and now they're stronger than ever. Not smart. We didn't know. There were things that we didn't really understand, that we didn't know that we didn't understand, and we're paying the price for that now. I am frightened that these people have so much ambition and so much certainty in them that, frankly, they don't fear what biologists don't know about life. It's really a Frankenstein story. That is, there's so much hubris in this. And as Steve Strogatz will tell you, biologists, in fact, scientists in general, know very. we now know how much we don't know about life. If biology really is about collective behavior, the interaction of billions of molecules, billions of species, and this network of, of life, we barely understand. You know, we keep being surprised about life. On the one hand, we can tinker in this engineering way, like the MIT students do or like Venter is doing. But on the other hand, the best biologists are still mystified that we only have about the same number of genes as a worm. We're really still missing 99% of the picture, literally. So it's a scary time to, to start playing Dr. Frankenstein, given how ignorant we are. Do you know that at Stony Brook University, where your mom worked for all those years, mm -hmm. there was a scientist, maybe a few doors down from your mom, who, who made from scratch, using the dust particles we were talking about, the polio virus, which the whole world has been working to eliminate. The polio. He made a new polio virus. Why? Now, I don't know why. <laughs> there was a lot of controversy about it. Huh. But there is a guy, perhaps in a cave somewhere in Afghanistan, who wants to make a polio virus and who will use it against us. Yeah, so this technology yeah. comes right. with not You're just right. risk. Told, because you are right that there, is, there are some bad things that can happen. Very bad. So things. the question is, then what? Like, what do you do in the face of that risk? How do you proceed? Do you say to these guys, stop? Would you have these guys stop doing what they're doing? Stop doing their experiments, asking questions, being curious? Oh, that'd be ridiculous to, to tell a scientist not to do science. So what then? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know exactly. Uh, but do I want them to, to not do experiments? No. I'm not saying don't, so I'm not going to be a troglodyte and say we shouldn't play with these. And Steve Strogatz agrees. I think it's great to play with them, but I'm scared too. I, I don't know. I'm confused about it because we have to play. That's how we make all science, you know, they speak of homo ludens, human beings, as the player. That we, we are what we are because we like to play with nature, with ideas, with language. This is how we learn things. So we're going to play, but we have to be very careful about how we play and we don't want to fall into the idea that we know more than we, we do. We have a vast ocean to discover before us. Okay, well, I guess that's all the time we have. Um, anything that you heard this hour that you want to hear again, more information, it's all on our website, radiolab.org. Any creature you'd like to build or any design for a creature that you'd like to build or any monster that you have in your head that you'd like to make into <laughs> real living flesh. Send that to us, too. Yes. While you're on our site, uh, send us an email as well. Radiolab at wnyc.org is our email address. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. Thanks for listening. 
Radio Lab is produced by Dad Adamride, Lulu Miller, Rob Christensen, Ellen Horn, Lauren Wheeler. Production support by Sally Hershep, Sarah Pellegrini, Ariel Lasky, Heather Radke, Linda Everett, Jonathan Miller, Josh Kurt, and Shane Winter. Thanks to Nicholas Van der Kolk, Ben Maston, Priya George, Kate Hines, and Tom and Foster Hudson. Radio Lab's webmaster is Valentina Powers. Check out our website at radiolab.org with a new design by Kevin Lahoda, Jacob Smullyan, Oates Richie Chai, and Howard Parnell. End of mailbox. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.